In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Now, if you're a Disney fan, I would imagine that you've checked out a lot of books about the history of Disneyland over the years. Mind you, it's been around for more than 65 years, so there's a lot to uncover there, and a number of authors have examined it from various perspectives, whether it be the development of the park on specific attractions, or even the artwork of the environment. Well, I would now like to take you on an exciting ride, Uh, so buckle your seatbelts. We are going to board a time machine into the past, into a period when Walt Disney actually stepped foot through the park. In her latest book, author Marcy Carriker Smothers focuses on Walt's Disneyland, which is a really cool and unique piece that chronicles the history of the park, um, particularly in the first decade when Walt was around, and focuses on the attractions, experiences, and sites that could be found around the happiest place on Earth. And Marcy talks about the book's development, as well as uh, some exciting fun finds within. So I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Marcy Carriker Smothers. Author Marcy Carriker Smothers has translated her passion and proclivities in cooking to fruitful publications, including the popular Eat Like Walt, The Wonderful World of Disney Food, and Delicious Disney, Walt Disney World. Uh, And one of her more recent releases takes readers back to the happiest place on earth as we go through Walt's Disneyland, a walk in the park with Walt Disney. And I'm excited to bring Marcy to the podcast today to discuss the creation of what's really one of the kind titles. So welcome to Notably Disney, Marcy. Well, thank you for having me, Britt. Well, let's just orient readers to your background as an author. Um, What drew you to enter the world of publishing to begin with? Well, you know, I I 
when I was little, I really wanted to be a writer. I always loved books, but you know, the, the real answer that got sucked out of me with life, you know, just putting yourself through college and everything else. And I ended up going to film school at UCLA and going in a different direction. And then I, uh, let's see, the early 2000s, I got a phone call up here where I live in Sonoma County from the local news station. And they asked me if I wanted to audition to be a radio talk show host, uh, only because I had, you know, done a lot of community service. I was a, not unknown, but they were just asking everybody to do it. Um, and I didn't want to, but then my surrogate grandfather said to me, take the cookies when they're passed. And that was this depression era saying, you know, and I, but okay, I'll try out. So I stammered for an hour about the very important subject of best food mayonnaise versus Miracle Whip. And then the other thing is I'm a big NASCAR fan and I camp at NASCAR at Sears Point every year. And I was talking about how to have a, the coolest NASCAR campground. 75 people auditioned. I was given the job, which is crazy. One of the people that auditioned was Guy Fieri. Well, about a year and a half later, Guy was trying out for the next Food Network star. And he was going on all the different radio shows, you know, to get votes. You know, this is this is the time we, we were saying, like, disable your cookies so you can vote again, you know. And when he came on, it was like verbal ping pong. We were just like, boom, boom, boom. We were laughing. We really just had so much fun and energy together. And he called me later. He said, we should do that again, like maybe even have a show, which I thought was a great idea, but I didn't know what that would be. So at, shortly thereafter, I left the local news talk station and I went to KGO in San Francisco in the greater Bay Area. And that's a giant top five market in the country. And I filled in for six months. And that's when I learned I didn't want to do news talk because I really don't care for politics. And it's so much work. You know, for me, every hour I was on the radio took me two hours to prepare. You know, it's just a lot of work. And I had lost my love for that. But one of the people at KGO said to me, why aren't you doing a food and wine show? You live in Sonoma County, you know? That's a really good question. So I called Guy, fade out, fade in. We had a radio show called Food Guy and Marcy. And we got into about 30 markets across the country. And at this time, you know, now Guy had the Guy's Big Bite and Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives that started. So he was really busy, but we still did it. And uh, then the, when the recession hit, that was that. I mean, a weekend show, even with a starlight guy, could not survive. And I just had to end the shows. But the silver lining of that is one of the um, regular people on our kitchen cabinet, I called it, our, you know, our recurring guest is Molly Katzen, who wrote Moosewood Cookbook and many, many others, a New York Times bestselling author. And we had lunch together and she said, you know, I listened to those things you had on your website called Snacks, which I'll explain in a second, and they should really be a book. And I'm Still, I say that looking at Molly Katzen with the, you know, the Charlie Brown rah, 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 from Peanuts, like, did Molly Katzen tell me to write a book? And she goes, I'll introduce you to my agent if you want. So I took the cookies when they were passed and I met her agent, Steve um, Troja at Folio. And the idea of the book was if they had created these radio features, uh, they're basically called a donut because you put an ad in the middle. And I would say things like, what does your dog's toy in an artichoke have in common? Why should you take a bath with your strawberries? And then have a guy would say, have a snack with Food Guy Marcy, sponsored by, and I'd give the answer. And the dog and the artichoke is that a really well-hydrated artichoke will squeak. And if you don't get a squeak, don't buy it because it's too dry and no ALE will save it. And the strawberry story is really interesting. The curious cook, 
uh, one of the most famous food scientists, Harold McGee, had lamented that you get these strawberries home. I think he lived in Virginia and they're so beautiful and fresh, but they go badly so quickly. So he did all these scientific experiments and he discovered that if you immerse your berries in the hottest tap water for 30 seconds and then dry them and put them in the refrigerator, it prolongs their shelf life by two to three days. So that's what I sold the book on. Then Harper to HarperCollins. Then they asked me to make it uh, a cookbook with 50 original recipes. I was utterly unprepared. But my son was at Vassar, so I thought, well, I'll go to CIA, Culinary Institute of America. And I did, and I learned how to do it. So that book, when that came out, it's a long way of getting to Disney, but my agent, Steve, said, what are you going to do next? And I said, I want to write about the food at Disneyland. You know, I love Disneyland. And he looked at me and he said, what are you going to do that's different than Instagram? And I hadn't considered that. And so he said, I can't bring this to anybody until you find an angle that no one's done before. And it can't be what people are doing every day from their iPhones. And that was brilliant. So I was curious if there had ever been a book written about the culinary history of Disneyland. And after doing a lot of due diligence, there had not even remotely had been done. And in that research for my proposal, I'd found an insert in an Orange County newspaper where Walt said, welcome to the kingdom of good eating where the food is as fabulous as the fun. And I knew I had the book and I knew it. And in fact, it was called kingdom of good eating for a long time, sold that to Disney. And that is how I started my Disney career and eat like Walt is, you know, snacks, adventures and food. The first book was a storybook that had recipes. Eat like Walt is a 50,000 word history book that has recipes, in this case, authentic to Walt Disney, whether it and his era, whether it be at home or at the studio at Disneyland, you know. So that was, and then the Walt Disney World 50th book is a recipes and stories. And my co-writer, Pam Brandon, has done all the delicious Disney cookbooks. She's a cookbook writer, so she handled all the chefs and the food photography and the recipes, and I wrote the stories. So I keep getting food keeps coming back in, but as and as a condiment to my Disney books, it's not my primary area of research, obviously, is Walt Disney. I should say, obviously, is Walt Disney, his area of Disneyland in particular. And then, you know, now I've ventured off a little bit into Walt Disney World into some other areas. I appreciate the comprehensive background there, Marcy. And I think it really... <laughs> long and boring. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I was very enthralled. And... Uh, in learning more about your background, and one question I often ask my guests is, what is their connection to Disney? And I understand from your website that you do have an interesting Disney connection in that your great aunt uh, was Peggy Lee. Um, and I'm wondering if you can maybe discuss how that musical influence and, and force in the Disney world shaped your upbringing. Well, we didn't have a lot of contact with Peggy. So, this, so my my, I was essentially raised by my grandparents and my grandmother's brother was Dave Barber. Dave Barber was the guitar player for Benny Goodman. And that's where he met Peggy and they got married and they had a baby, which is my mother's cousin. Um, and then they divorced, um, but she we still stayed our friends with, uh, well, Peggy's daughter also just passed, has passed away, but her, Peggy's granddaughter, I don't know you call her, my second cousin, Holly, runs the Peggy Lee Enterprises. So I probably know more about Peggy as an adult than I ever did as a kid, but of course, Lady in the Trap. And I was fascinated, you know, that she did write that music with Sonny Burke, but she never got the credit. 
And so I'd ask Holly about that, you know, when she went back and sued the Walt Disney Company long after Walt was gone for her equal share of the royalties for co-writing the music. And I always wondered about that. And first thing I've been taught as a historian, don't speculate, don't pause it. You don't know what Walt would have done. But, you know, my guess is, you know, you, I don't think at the time he would have, you know, at that era that it was done, it wasn't an omission. You know, it wasn't, it was just, a, you know, something that should have been rectified and, and finally was. So now I have a great appreciation for Peggy and, um, and not just Lady and the Tramp, but I've, I it definitely had an impact on me for sure. Well, and a, an interesting parallel that kind of transitions over to our book. So one thing that both Lady and the Tramp and Disneyland have in common is that they debuted in 1955. And that's what takes us to your wonderful book. It's full of flavor, both figuratively, maybe not literally, but it, there's a lot of flavor, even if there's not as much of a food emphasis. But I'm, I'm really curious and you know, you mentioned a little bit about the background of Eat Like Walt, but shifting over to Walt's Disneyland, um, I understand that it was a conversation with the late legend, Disney legend, Jim Cora, that helped instigate um, its development. And I'm hoping you can kind of orient me and listeners to uh, that spark and that, that uh, direction for you. Well, thank you for bringing up Jim. Jim Cora was a dear friend and, uh, and my mentor. And the way I met Jim is, well, he's just a very funny guy, but this is the story is that when I was writing Eat Like Walt, my editor, Wendy Lefkon, and my dear friend introduced me to Marty Sklar and said, Marcy's doing this interesting book, would you help her? Everything you've heard about Marty being the most forthcoming, helpful champion of others is true. And so our first meeting was at Gail's. It's a restaurant in Pasadena. I highly recommend it because a lot of Imagineers still go there and Gail used to run the restaurant at, at WDI, um, the owner of the restaurant. And he afterwards, I got an email. Thanks for lunch. He said, how about if I set up another lunch with Jim Cora, Ron Dominguez, and Jack Lindquist? How does that sound? <laughs> I still call it, laugh. Like, how does that sound? I'm like, wow, you know. So uh, Marty ended up not being able to come to the, uh, to the, what was then a breakfast, turned out to be a breakfast. And Jack Lindquist was not doing so at the time. So he didn't come. It was Ron Dominguez and it was Jim. But I didn't know that or he was going to cancel, you know, it was last minute the complication. So I brought his books with me to have him autograph them. And they were sitting, you know, right in front of me on the, the table. And I had my Sharpie pen, you know, positioned ready to make it. I even had a post-it notes on the title page to make it easy for him to sign. And Jim Cora looks at me, says, why do you bring those with you? You can't sleep when you travel. <laughs> and that was the start. I mean, Jim Cora was another light guy. He was ping pong. Yeah. To be able to come back. Jim opened every door every introduction was, I mean, a significant amount was Jim uh, that would not have happened if I did not have him, his tremendous support and was a trusted reader and also just a champion. And when I, like one time when I was really upset because a certain, an official publication, I'll be honest, called it the Tiki Room. And it's Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. We always say it's Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room because it's the only attraction at Disneyland that Walt owned. I mean, it's the only, excuse me, well, he did own it, but the only attraction still at Disneyland with his name on it, and he owned it, and he sold it back to Disneyland the day that the attraction debuted, and all this I learned from Jim, who was on that team, uh, and so, you know, he started firing off emails to everybody, 
we need to fix this. It, you know, this is important to Walt. We can't abbreviate it ever. It always has to be Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. So there would be things like that all the time when I was in the park or if I had a question or if I felt something could be rectified or he would agree. The other thing he didn't like, I'll be honest, is he didn't like the, he sent me this sort of as a test that was Jim's way to see if I had the right response. But you've probably seen these things and they're really charming when the little kids that are dressed as stormtroopers are engaging with the big stormtroopers um walk around characters but in this case the stormtrooper pointed a gun at this little boy jim was livid is like this is not acceptable and he writes about it in his uh, well not directly but he writes about it in his new book that just came out posthumously where he says that when they were building the park for tokyo they said we don't want your guns we don't want guns in disneyland so you know that was uh, to be fair that was Jim, the context of Jim's time, right? That's how it, it's not a judgment. I'm not speaking about the parks or the company. I'm just sharing how Jim felt and our relationship. And another really long way of getting to when uh, it like Walt was published, we were at our favorite restaurant and he said, what's next kid? And I had three ideas uh, and I listed them for him. But when he, I, when he heard me explain, I have this idea of making a souvenir guide, kind of air quotes, but a guide to Disneyland told him Walt's words and the people that built and created Disneyland with him. And he said, that's it. Make it a priority. He told me to email XYZ, XYZ, super high level people and to copy him and to tell them that I was going to write this book and to give me, I mean, it just, that's why I did it because Jim told me to. And also, I mean, I liked all three books equally at that time, to be honest. And now I'm just so grateful to him. And that took, you know, three years later, it came out last November. Three years of research and writing, it came out in November. Well, and there's, and as, as you know, I'm preaching to the choir here in terms of the volume of books that have been written about Disneyland over the years, but the distinction or one distinction I should say with yours is just the notion of prioritizing first person accounts and really honoring Walt's voice in it. And I'm wondering how you, decided to shape the narrative, given that, as mentioned, a lot has been discussed about the early days of Disneyland, that first decade. So how did you kind of navigate how you entered the space through this particular narrative approach? It's such a smart question. Thank you. Well, I did it both Eat Like Walt and Walt's Disneyland. That was my standard, you know, never third person. Everyone knew Walt, no exceptions. A funny tangential story that related to that was Eat Like Walt, when Marty Sklar introduced me to Tony Baxter and Tony Baxter counts because he was an ice cream scooper at Carnation and Walt came up to his window once. So it counts, right? Uh, but Tony wrote back, what is there possibly left to write about Walt Disney? I mean, it really read like that with his words so strong. And uh, I said, well, I couldn't have this idea about doing it through the lens of food. Then he got excited, took me to Club 33 and he has a great contribution. So. If, that is a really good question. I have to ask myself that all the time. What is left to write about Walt Disney? And so I think that was part of our discussion with Jim. I know it was part of our discussion was that it has never been done before through the eyes of the founder. And that was my, and it was like this idea that you were actually taking a walk with Walt through the park. So I decided that I, it was a little bit of a metric because I, could only write about things where I had really good quotes or stories. So there may be things in Disneyland say, well, why did she choose that? Was because what I had access to, which is a lot with the Walt Disney archives and all these people that worked with Walt and my library of books that are, you know, fantastic and um, accepted resources. 
it's still limiting because I've had to have, for me, I didn't want to put it in the book unless it was compelling about and telling it from Walt's perspective. Thankfully, I'd done a lot of research in the archives in 2019 and I had a lot, of, a lot of my material, but then I had no access for two years of writing this book where I normally would have. So I, so things like Fantasyland, I hadn't finished that research, so I don't have as much meat in Fantasyland as I might have in other areas because I was able to do that in 2019. But still, you know, you know, newspapers.com, an incredible resource. So I just kept digging, digging and digging obscure books after obscure books for one quote until I felt like I could tell the story from Walt's perspective. And hopefully, the other thing I like to add is hopefully you really feel good when you, you're reading it, because why does there need to be another book about Disneyland? There didn't need to be another fact book about Disneyland, in my opinion. I've been very clear about that from the beginning. There are excellent ones. I think I own a lot of them in my library. There did need to be another fact book. Mine was about feelings. I wanted you to feel the way that you do when you you know go through the turnstile and you go under the train station while you were reading the book whether you could be in Disneyland or not and that Walt was with you and that was the other distinction for me. Uh, those are I think really thoughtful answers and I'm curious in terms of uh, this is just a fascinating component for me in learning about the development of any book is just the curation of content. Can you maybe speak to how you gathered uh, photos from the Walt Disney Archives photo library and WDI's photo collection. And then in concert with a point that you just said in terms of searching rare books or different titles for even just one quote that could be applicable, could you maybe speak to both the imagery component and also the unique lines or quotes that uh, helped fill the narrative component? Well, with the quotes, I think, you know, I thank you for observing that. In fact, DDA Getz from the Disney History Institute had said, where did you get, you know, these quotes? And a lot of them came from newspapers.com. Uh, and in that sense, you, so many of things were picked up, right? And just printed, you know, a hundred papers across the country. But every once in a while, you would, you'd find a unique answer. And one of those is one of my favorites when the reporter asked, well, what surprises you about Disneyland? And he says, how early they arrive, you know, like that back then, if he only knew now about magic mornings and, you know, queuing up hours before. So um, if that's an example of that, and then books, Charlie Ridgeway, who is a Disney legend, I, Pam Brandon, my co-writer, thank you, Pam, on the Walt Disney World book, was really great friends with his daughter, Janet Ridgeway. And Janet happened to be going through her dad's things when I was there, and short story, shortest version Marcy can give is I was invited to come over and look at her dad's collection. And I said, this should, you should really save this. This is this, is that, this is this. But when it came to his books and his photos and some of she said, I want you to have those. And I said, and they were nothing that you couldn't get. Like I knew the archives had them. There'd be duplicates of the Pirates of the Caribbean souvenir book or um, an original copy of Life magazine or something that he had to do with in terms of being in charge of publicity and PR. Uh, and she gave me all, all that, which I treasure. And with that was Charlie's book, Spinning the World, I think. I'm sorry, I don't have it off the top of my head. Spinning the Disney World. And you know, in that book were some jam quotes. One of them was about, you know, the way the whole Disneyland got electric whenever Walt was in it. it. Somehow everybody knew and it just electrified, paraphrasing the park. With images, it was much, much harder uh, because the archives were closed. So 
I had been to part, a lot of the Walt Disney photo archives is digitalized and as an, an a official author, I have access to that, but there's only so many images of Walt Disney at Disneyland. What you see on Instagram and all, you know, people posting, they may not, they're not owned by Disney, right? It can be owned by a million other factions or photographers or Getty, we don't use those, you know? So that was, I was limited how many photos actually there are to a degree, and then not being able to go through the photo books again. So one of the most cool things about the Walt Disney Archives is in the photo building, they have three ring binders. And that's where so many images are. And you just sit there, you pull binder after binder and you just turn it. And if you like it, you write down the neg number and you ask to see that photo digitalized and have that photo scanned for you. So one of the things I found there was the Mike E letter where Mike E had snuck into Disneyland and he had said that he was really sorry, Mr. Disney, but it was great and I'll, you know, I'll pay you back. I had chosen that in early 2019, having no idea what I was gonna do with it. And then in researching, I found an interview with one of Walt's childhood friends. And he said that they snuck into the amusement parks in Kansas City and Walt made a promise he would never tell that story when he was alive because <laughs> he didn't want people sneaking into his amusement park. And I, that's when you go magic, you know, I can pay off the Mikey with that story. And, and then the other way I did it for photos, I would like behind me, I have a uh, Chris Merritt's book and, and Pete Doctor's book, right? Just an amazing book about marketing. Oh, yeah. So I would look in that because I knew if it was in a Disney Editions book that it would be available to me. And that's where, for instance, the Pirates of the Caribbean test um, test boats were. And so I then that's, I wouldn't, that's how I found it was looking in their book, you know, and thank you to them. And then you go to WDI and you ask for permission for those. And some of those actually came from Aero Development from the Aero's family. So it was a long, that was the hardest thing because sometimes I would find them, couldn't use them. I can't go into it. I wish I could tell you, but there is an image I know has never been published before. We licensed it. My editor agreed because it was so special and we paid for it. They Disney paid for it. And in the end, they said we can't use it for, you know, legal reasons. So, but so few things was I not allowed to do. I can't fault it, but I'm hoping one day that photo will clear because it's spectacular. I mean, it says more about Walt Disney and Disneyland than almost my cover says the most to me, which is from the National Geographic 1963 interview. But this one was great. But anyway, I hope that answered your questions. Yeah. Well, and now it's such a tease as to what that mystery photo is. But you mentioned the the just very touching anecdote of the the kid writing the apology letter to to Walt Disney. And, and that actually was one of my um one of the points I want to mention because I feel like it it adds such a level of humanity that it's it's just it's a note and it and there's I mean I'm just touched by the also the um, thoughtfulness of it and the penmanship is really great for for a young child which is I mean I I know adults who don't have a uh, penmanship like that but just the the notion of hey you know I uh, I wanted to direct a message to the to the founder or the developer of of this amusement enterprise so. Um, I think that was just a very uh, cool inclusion. Thank um, you. And, and there's some really cool photos of, of Walt in the park in different uh, stages of development. And one of them that, that I really 
kind of caught me off guard in a really interesting way was is in your fantasy land chapter where it's Walt who's kind of standing on the hill of storybook land canal boats and it just shows how um you know he, he's just kind of it's he almost seems contemplative in the in the shot and um I guess I'm wondering from your standpoint as an author who has the opportunity to select the photos as you were just indicating what it's like for you to to process the the role that you have in being able to, to in this case really tell Walt's story of of developing Disneyland. Well, I mean, I am I'm, I'm a crier. Uh, my whole my whole barometer as a, an author is particularly with Disney is, does it make me laugh? Does it make me cry? Does it give it goosebumps? Because I am the reader as much as the writer. First and foremost, I'm a Disney geek who is lucky enough to have the honor and privilege of writing about Walt Disney and Disneyland. And so in the, with the images, that would be what happened. Like the other one I really found, still find kind of haunting in the Walt's Disneyland book in a good way is Walt on the Mark Twain looking at Tom Sawyer Island before it had been built out. And he's just, you know, the Mark Twain meant so much to him. He had it built. It was, you know, the realization of a dream he didn't have as a young man after World War I of sailing down the Mississippi. You know, everyone that knew Walt said it was one of his favorite. No one can say his favorite, but no doubt one of his favorite attractions. And I just see him on that. And I, I just, sometimes I just stare at it. And I, you know, I don't, if I have a reaction, I guess a visceral reaction to it, it made the book. I, I can definitely see how that's just such a great opportunity and and also uh you know emotional um i I recognize too in how you developed the book that you really wanted to not only honor walt but also all the key figures who he worked with uh very closely and you have the dream doers section at the at the end that it's it almost felt like and and perhaps you're familiar with um, the the famous Dave Smith book Disney A to Z with all the different right so that that's what this almost felt like for me like a very condensed version in terms of uh, key figures in in the Walt Disney Company and Disney Imagineering so I, I guess I'm wondering why that was important to you to have a space that really abbreviates important figures that perhaps the ordinary Disney fan or reader would not know about otherwise. Thank you for that question too. That was really, really important to me because of course Walt didn't do this by himself. And you know, it is important. There's so many people dedicated their lives and then after he passed away, dedicated their lives, not just to Walt Disney World, but other parks uh, around the world. When I wrote Walt's Disneyland, uh, that was my first history book. And I say very with playfully, but it's true. It was like vetting my dissertation, Dr. Brett, you know, cause I had Dave Smith, and two other archivists question this, where's your source, what da 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 da. So what I thought was really good record keeping and eat like Walt, you know, cause I don't have a PhD like you, and you know, I thought I was really doing a good job was not, that was very base sort of like junior high level. So with Walt's Disneyland and Walk in the Park with Walt Disney, I was determined to get super duper organized for this book. So again, I thought I was, I mean, I have every resource, everything catalog, I have a digital blah, blah, blah. Um, but how was I, you know, really, what is I going to do with those? Because I wanted to have endnotes and I wanted to have really good endnotes because if it took me this long to find the stuff, I want you and your students and people that are listening and others that are going to research Walt to be able to find the source. 
So I hired a friend of mine, acquaintance of mine, who has a master's in library information and science, Grace Ramirez. And she and I, she did the dream doers. I identified them. We partnered with D23. Thanks to Wendy Lefkon, they allowed us to use their material. And so we edited those down. And then she compiled the 13,000 words and endnotes that were also vetted by the Walt Disney Archives. So I edited the endnotes. So I'm very proud of those two because it goes back to, for the casual fan, I want them to know more about Herb Ryman or I want them to know more about Charlie Ridgeway or any of the myriad of people that worked with Walt. And then for people that want to write or do their own research in the future, that's why I wanted the endnotes to be so meticulous. Yeah, no, and I think that is very clear and it's funny and I think that's how things have evolved for me as a reader as I've gone older and entered different stages of my career is realizing the value of endnotes and pointing you to the original source or little discoveries that you wouldn't be able to glean otherwise and um, and I was going to say it, it seems like that was very meticulously crafted particularly since it's framed along the lines of every uh, attraction or experience or particular um, element in the book so um, it really seems to extend the, um, the substance that is within the main portion of the book as well. Thank you. I think I, I also feel that when, you know, you look back at what EndNotes represent, you can't use, you know, I can't use any resource I want, right? There's very, there's a very strict sort of protocol about what I can use. So I, you know, I can't use fan sites. I can't use, you know, it's, it's, so it, also just want to add like that's part, you know, for future researchers, if, for, if you're thinking about writing a book for Disney, official book for Disney edition, you have to use it. That's, that's where A to Z, right? Or any of these myriad of books that Disney editions previously published, or um, I could go on and on. They're all in the end notes of these sources that if you're entering something into Disney history, it's serious business. I mean, and it's wonderful, fun business, but it's, it's work. Well, and along those lines, it makes me wonder because I recognize that some of the information comes from um, articles and magazines like Time from many decades ago. So how does that figure when I recall you mentioning earlier the notion of how sometimes even modern articles get things wrong in terms of like saying the Tiki Room as opposed to Walt Disney's Enchanted well, That's Tiki my room. personal bias. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, people do get it wrong. I got it wrong. I just got, I'm, you know, I just got it wrong the other day again. I really thought I had found a uh, something that I could, you know, use. And then with a little bit more uh, work, I, I found out that I couldn't, you know, the magazines for the most part, you know, they were all vetted by Charlie Ridgway or others, you know, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, they had people looking at them. And of course, Walt Disney Archives. Um, and of course, I think we would all consider Time, Look, um, Reader's Digest, National Geographic, reputable sources. I mean, they had interviewed Walt. These are Walt's words. It's not somebody speculating right about Walt or whatever. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of them out there, but again, you think about Walt was only, well, 12 or 13 years, depending on how you count Walt with Disneyland, but he was planning it for 20 years ahead of time. And then there were things that I talk about, like with Marceline, when he was a child, his hometown that influenced obviously Disneyland. So this was a life's work that for a while, you could go all the way back as I did to when he was eight or, you know, six, seven and eight, nine years old. And what he said, direct quotes that he said at that point, or as recalled by Roy O. Disney, but because Roy O. Disney said, my brother said this, then yes, boom, we got ourselves a great quote. 
Yeah, and I think that perfectly aligns with or segues into my next question, which is really about how you very deliberately incorporate stories about Walt's childhood or other aspects about his life in concert with describing the attractions or experiences. So an example of this would be very notably with the railroad and, and Walt's love of trains and, and that. And I'm wondering how you felt this approach helped tell the Disneyland story uh, as well. It's just, he, you know, when you mentioned before about, you know, humanizing, that was the other very important thing for me and an eat like Walt too, is that to not deify Walt, you know, was, he was a human, human being. In fact, Ron Miller, his son-in-law said to me in our first interview, I'm going to wreck your book. And I'm like, why are you saying that? Because he was just a human being. And as I continually do research, all the people that knew Walt say the same thing. He was a human being. That's why they describe him, you know, pretty, pretty ordinary, right? So for instance, when I went to Marceline to do some research for um, the book and I went to his childhood home and my friend owns now, Kay Mallins, who founded the Walt Disney, co-founded the Walt Disney Hometown Museum. And I had found this great quote um, uh, in Reader's Digest from Royo Disney um, talking about that, how they would snuggle in bed together and they would hear Uncle Mike's train. Just those three or four words, we would snuggle in bed together. I thought that is so special. Now I'm going to use that. And then when I went and then people talk about a lot while running to, I mean, it depends on your level of geekdom, but when his uncle Mike, the engineer would toot the horn, like it, the train was slowing down and it was coming into Marceline and Walt would jump into the cabin, right to the right to the depot. Well, I got to his house. I'm like, how the heck did he ever make it to the depot from here? You know, this is a waste. And Kay said, no, 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 he, they just ran across the street. That's where the train would start slowing down. So I went and I paced it off, took photos, and I saw exactly how far it was. That made sense to me. And so I included it in the book because I wanted it to be accurate. And the other one I love from Marceline is uh, that when he was in the hearse, when, when, when Roy had a job cleaning up the funeral parlor, which is actually where the Coca-Cola refreshment, Coca-Cola refreshment mural is, um, and Walt said, my brother Roy would do all the work and I'd lay in the back of the hearse and play dead all day. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's great. That's got to have something to do with the Haunted Mansion. He played dead all day, you know, and now there's a hearse in the front of the attraction at Disneyland. So it's really a very, I don't know how to explain it. It's fun. I guess Tetris is another way to say it. There's just little pieces that I would find if it had an emotional response for me. I knew it belonged in the book and eventually I would find where in the book it fit best. Absolutely. I can't quote it exactly. And this is not a Disney quote, but it makes me think of, there's a famous line from Maya Angelou as far as that people will not always necessarily remember what you said, but rather how, how they made you feel. And I think that that carries through, especially when we're talking about Walt, where it's so much of it is based on the emotion associated with his experiences or how his experiences impacted others. Thank you. Definitely for me. That's very, very important. That's part of the legacy for sure. Yeah. I feel like we're, we're, you're just setting up all the segues, Marcy, because in terms of legacy, one cool element of the book that I think is helpful for readers is when you are illustrating particular sites or experiences from opening day Disneyland or the early days of Disneyland, you also illustrate what what may be currently in its place if it doesn't um, exist anymore. So there's that context of what has succeeded. But one of the interesting elements is that 
there are many instances where you illustrate what aspects of an, an experience's original incarnation are still in existence. So one of them is like you mentioned the espresso machine in Cafe Orleans, and there are others as well. So I guess I'm wondering, um, you know, what, what do you think readers will glean from seeing that elements of Disneyland from, you know, 65 plus years ago are still, uh, still manifest and present themselves today? You know, a lot of really great social media platforms love to do this, you know, you know, TikToks and Insta, like, you didn't know that this was, you know, so I think everyone wants to be an insider. So those, I wanted to be an insider. My first talk I ever did for Disney at D23, for, like Walt, I said, raise your hand if you think you know more about Disneyland than anybody else, you know, and everyone's hand went up, you know, everyone wants to know the most. Uh, so I just wanted to point out because again, it was a connection to Walt. It's a Walt connection. I have learned to recognize only recently. This is the truth, Brett. Not everyone cares about Walt like I do. I like, doesn't everybody go to Disneyland? When I, I actually went around the park a few months ago with a friend of mine that's a pretty big influencer. And when I was showing him, for instance, the hideout windows um, at the Plaza Inn, I think that's so cool. And this is Walt's private place before 33. And he was like, well, well, well look at that, you know, that, there, look at that shiny object. And so I realized that, you know, not everyone does, but yeah, I, every, this is my love letter to Walt Disney. So if it's in there, I think if, and I want you to know Walt, you can connect with him with these things, including the, the tree in Tomorrowland, the Reclinata tree. Rolly Crump personally told me that story. And when I heard that, I'm like, I can't believe this. Um, what I'm hearing is that Bill Evans, but briefly, Bill Evans, who was the head landscape guy, kept saying to Walt for the Tomorrowland remodel, there's this beautiful multi-trunk reclinata tree that I found to be perfect for Tomorrowland. And Walt kept saying, yeah, 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 one day, one day, one day, as Rolly tells me. And then he died suddenly, no one knew. And Bill Evans spent his own money, drove and picked up that tree, called Rolly and said, meet me at, in Tomorrowland at three in the morning, which is when they did all their installations, right? And they, the two of them together planted it. And they picked the spot where it remains today by the Utopia and Carousel of Progress because those were Walt's attractions. And that's that same beautiful tree remains. So my daughter who goes to Chapman called me uh, a couple of years, three or four years, I guess four years ago now, three years ago, when they were doing some uh, refurbishments in Tomorrowland and they had put up those screens all around the tree. And she said, mom, mom, roll his tree, you know? And I was so worried that, you know, I was, and I went to Disneyland because I live in Northern California, like a few weeks later and I saw it and I was just like, oh, please don't. But I, they saved the tree. They just put a new planter, added some new detail. And I was so relieved that it, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's my, my level of geekdom. I even, Brett, when Alaska Airlines pre-COVID, when you would drop down and it would say plan a trip and it, and then you drop it down and they, the most popular places in America, it would say Disney World. Oh, I told Jim Cora I was in a, calling it Disney World, not Walt Disney World. And then I started writing letters to Alaska until I could get an answer. It should be Walt Disney World. Roy O. Disney, his brother, said there would be a Disney World without Walt. He added his brother's name so that we'd always remember that this was Walt's dream. I have to tell you, Alaska wins for customer service, but they're like, uh, we can't do anything unless the company asks us to change it. So, yeah, true. All true about my geekdom. 
Well, I think maybe in the future when they have the Disneyland refurbishment schedule, they should put the Recklin Auditory as one of the items so as not to concern people. Exactly. I think that that was a pretty obscure one, but it, it counts to me. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's lots of interesting details. And I think, you know, even the most ardent Disney fans will discover something new in here. And one of the cool, consistent sidebars um, is at like the end of your book, at the end of each chapter in the book, and you have one focused on Walt's disguises. And, and can you maybe share a little bit about that for listeners? Because I thought that was kind of um, intriguing. I just loved that Walt, again, being a human being, always waited in line, um, liked to go walk around and listen to what people were saying about his park. He also instructed, and John Hench, Disney legend John Hench talks about this quite a bit, uh, that he would say, I want you guys to go down to the park on the weekends and do it like a regular guest. You know, I want you to wait in line. I want you to see what's working, what's not working. So it wasn't just Walt, it was his people, but he cared deeply. He cared how quickly you got through lines. He didn't want people to uh, wait too long. And that's another story we can go into. But Jim Cora told me back in the day, and Jim started there in 57, you know, it used to be between eight and 12 attractions in a day was the goal. You know, I realized completely different times. But so when Walt had disguises, you know, his, his daughter Diane disguise, describes one way he would, you know, get through the park. One of the stories that I loved was when he was at uh, Peter Pan and he was talking with guests in disguise. Then he was sharing some little tidbits about the attraction before they wrote it and just sort of going along, listening, love chit-chatting. They get off and the family says, wow, everything you told us was so neat. We really liked hearing about that, but it made the attraction so much better. And how do you know so much? And then he's like ripping off his said, I'm Walt Disney is why, you know? And, and I mean, he did the same thing with Walt Disney World when he was in disguise when, when they're working on Project X and they were in a restaurant in Orlando. And this waitress just kept looking at Walt and looking at Walt and she came up to him. She goes, you know what? You really look like Walt Disney. Remember, this was super stealth. No one was supposed to know that they were in Orlando. They used assumed names, et cetera, et cetera. So she says to him, you know, you look really look, what do you mean I look like Walt Disney? I am Walt Disney. Sorry, that's my Walt voice. I don't know why, you know, and he took out his driver's license to prove it to her. So yeah, I think that this part of the fan experience, the guest experience was critical. You know, everybody was a VIP to Walt and he really meant that. And he really appreciated that families might save up for years to come for just one day to Disneyland. And he always honored that principle. He kept prices to as best as he could, including food prices so that it could be enjoyed by everybody. And when, you know, he died and several pe people didn't know that we closed Disneyland and they called Lillian and, and his wife and she said, no, he wouldn't want to disappoint the people that had come all that way, as did Dick Newton. I mean, all the people, Sullivan, I mean, people that had worked with Walt all just knew that he wouldn't want to disappoint anybody. So they stayed open. Yeah, no, I, I whenever I hear about that, it's always so poignant. And I guess one of my final questions um, at this point is, clearly you've, you've done your research and I'm wondering, did you have any cool insider experiences in visiting Disneyland um, as part of the work that you've crafted here? Things that perhaps most folks wouldn't have access to or, or discoveries that you had um, on that journey. Well, I, 
you know, even pre-COVID, you know, I write at Disneyland, I say, you know, as I said, the reader as much as the writer and writing at Disneyland just absolutely infused me with Walt's spirit because I absolutely, that is still there. But I am a, I'm a geek and I, I keep saying that because I really am an ordinary person with, you know, I, a writer. I, I always work really hard at it. So no, I did not. The only, I had no extra insider stuff for this book, except one thing was I was invited into Walt's apartment, which is not the easiest thing to do. So that was definitely, but I was with a group of other Disney people. It wasn't just for Marcy. Um, but I would say that I pride myself on doing what my mentor, if I may call Walt that, you know, that he did. I wait in line and I listen and that's where I glean, you know, a lot of what's important to people. I mean, on the, it would not be unknown for me to talk to perfect strangers, period, but perfect, Mary Lynn, if you're listening, yeah, that's another story, uh, perfect strangers, and particularly with children, and I would say to them, do you know who Walt Disney is? And most of the time, they would say yes, sometimes they wouldn't, and if they said yes, and I asked the parents to engage, and they would always, you know, there are no strangers at Disneyland, and I would say, do you think Walt Disney is a real person or somebody more like Santa Claus? You know, and, and I was always trying to impress upon the kids and the parents that he was a real person, just as Diane Disney Miller's daughter felt that it was really important. This isn't a brand icon. This is a magnificent, tremendous, genius, innovator, human being named Walt Disney. And so I really cannot think of an instance where I got something special. I just would go and sit and listen and work and write. And I would move from what I called office to office at Main Street USA or Tom Sawyer Island or the Frontierland Loading Dock. I would, Golden Horseshoe, I wrote in Walt's box a lot. I would never take a seat if it was lunchtime or dinner time and people were looking for tables. I was only in spots that were um, sparsely being used at the time. And yeah. I know. I appreciate that perspective. I think, you know, we keep going back to the notion of the emotion, the, the emotion and poignance of of Walt and, and those experiences and also the humanity. And I think that's, um, you know, that's, I think, perfectly illustrated in your example of what I know you said Diane Disney Miller wanted others to relate is that Walt was a real person. That was ultimately the foundation, I think, of the Walt Disney Family Museum in terms of really demonstrating that in full force. And I know Jeff Curdy, who's been on our, on the podcast before, who's um, a friend of mine who basically indicated that that's ultimately what should drive a lot of Disney history is that Walt was a human, Walt was a person who, um, you know, was complex and, and nuanced. And I think books like this help kind of tell that story in a, because of that firsthand approach. So, um, so that's what I really, what I value from this. Thank you. Appreciate that so much, especially, oh, I just appreciate it. And, you know, you live, you, in your world, you, you in education, you know, you delve in that, right? And I had never, until you thinking about that, I get, well, I guess I do hope. And Jeff's such a brilliant historian and writer. And he worked with Jim Cora on, that was their book together, not just a walk in the park, uh, that it is really important to, for all the things that Jeff said and to humanize him and to keep doing it and to do it well so that we're not perpetuating this, you know, or positing or speculating but just, you know, re reporting the facts, you know, and, and then hopefully doing it in a, a way of storytelling that is engaging and makes you, in my case, you know, feel the, I really, really cared about the emotion above anything else, even though it's been vetted um, and it's accurate facts. I, I care more about how you feel and that you relate to Walt 
and that you want to help me and others uh, preserve his legacy and continue to honor him in the only park in the world that he ever stepped foot in, played and slept in or worked in. Yeah, no, and there's a lot packed in here. I mean, I we haven't even really talked as much about the design and all that's in here. I have to say I was very surprised by how small the font size was because there's ultimately, a, there's like there's more in here than I think meets the eye. And I think that, I think behooves the the reader that there's so much concentrated and it also doesn't compromise really being able to see the details of some of the photos too. Yeah, that font size, you know, here's the thing. I could have had, another Eat Like Walt, beautiful hardcover, 50,000 word coffee table book. But from the beginning, when I was talking with Tim Cora, when I pitched it to him, it was always, and I say air quote souvenir guide because I don't think souvenir guides take three years and hundreds of resources to write, but a souvenir guide is really what it is. And in order to be a souvenir guide and to get it into hands of people, it had to be affordable and portable. So I chose Softcover and that size is kind of dictated by the reality of selling books and shelf space at Disneyland and, and other places where guidebooks, travel books are sold. So that was just the reality that it was gonna be, uh, it didn't occur to me because I'm a word person, not an image person, even though I, I mean, I'm an image person, I just select the images, but I can't see the whole thing like Susie Hutzel who did the design and the layout gets so much credit because she's such a visionary. And she was like my Imagineer bringing my ideas to life for me when I saw it in the book. But yeah, I know, I'm sorry about that small font. And I, I do hope maybe this does not speak for anybody, but Marcy, just Marcy, maybe one day a book is never finished, it just goes to print. Uh, I have so much more material and the archives are back open that I might be able to do a hardcover special edition and bigger font <laughs> would be included. That's, yeah, that would be a dream come true for me. That'd be really cool, but I appreciate how you mentioned the portability of it and also the affordability, because I think one thing I always think about as a consumer is, is when I'm getting worth what's being charged and, and, you know, there's obviously differences with soft cover versus hard cover and size and all the components, but I mean, and, and I'm not saying this because it's just, you know, I'm talking to you. I, I do feel like it's a really good deal for all that you're getting in here. So <laughs> I think it actually behooves uh, readers to take it with them to the park because it is, um, it is pretty light and um, there's lots of good pictures and certainly the text. So um, I think it's probably a wise choice um, for, for the book to go in that direction. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it really, really was important. Also, thank you for mentioning that about, could you take it into the park? I mean, when I see when people do tag me on Twitter and Instagram and they say, oh, I'm reading it, you know, this is like, one woman says, like, I feel like this is a big warm hug from Walt, you know, I'm like, man, you know, she's sitting at Disneyland, she's reading the book, she's feeling all the feels and she's learning something and happy. So what that makes me, and I do think affordability is incredibly important. The difference between a 35 and a $50 book and a $15.99 book, plus certain bits, venues, um, certain marketplaces discount those, and that can be as low as $11.99. So over-deliver, if that's, that's not a bad thing on that price. Yeah, it's kind of like on the complete other end of the scale, the fantastic Chris Merritt P. Doctor book that Mark Davison is on website we were talking about earlier. Mind you, I think the original price was 150 and it's fluctuated over time. And that's a tome, that's a behemoth. And it's also worth every single penny. I agree. So um, as we wrap up, Marcy, are you in a spot where you can share with us what is next for you in your professional pursuits? I can. I am oh, 
I can't, as I say it, you're probably one of the few people that have said it too, but I am now writing for National Geographic. National Geographic was acquired by Disney with 20th Century Fox. And I'm stunned by how many people do not realize that Nat Geo is in the Disney family. If you have Disney Plus, you probably realize that. Right. Yeah. Right, right there. So my editor, Wendy Lefcon, right after I finished Walt's Disneyland and the Walt Disney World 50th book, which, you know, this was really a, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, and she said that National Geographic wants to get into um, so helping to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company in 2023, and they're going to do a book. Would you be interested in uh, my throwing your name uh, or their hat in the ring? And I said, no, I am exhausted. You know, it's, you know, I, the bad analogy of just having given birth and someone says, do you want to have another? And you say, I just want to enjoy the one I have, or in this case, twins that I had. And but then again, my surrogate grandfather friend, William T. Young, take the cookies when they're passed. So I said, sure, sure, sure. I'd be crazy not to talk to Nat Geo. And long story short, which as you've learned on this podcast, it's not the way with me. Um, the, the, any, they offered me the book. And so it's the 100 Disney Adventures of a Lifetime. And it is just super duper fun, light, which is a nice, you know, because history is a serious business. Uh, as, fun, as much as I enjoyed the process and writing. And so when I took on the project, they had already sort of vetted people across the platforms of the company and what they thought, what crews thought, what parks thought, which, you know, everyone thought were the best things that you could do. And then I was left to my own devices and we created them. And then there's going to be, it's just also a stunningly beautiful book. And it's for people to remember with Nat Geo, not necessarily the Nat Geo audience, it's not necessarily the Disney audience. Also, I have to, most travel books, which I've never done one before, but I know are aspirational, right? Like a lot of cookbooks. I'm never going to make that, but the picture looks nice, or I wish I could go to that restaurant to eat it. So, you know, to have sat in, you know, and to write about these things, some of which I can, most of which I can never really experience, uh, and to bring them to the world about what you might do if you could go around the world and experience them. But the thing I'm most proud of is that I have included, it's going to be called the um, Adventure with Walt, and it's going to include stuff outside of the Disney company that you can do to connect with Walt, such as the Walt Disney Family Museum, the Walt Disney Hometown Museum, and Walt's Barn, Uncle Robert's Garage, where Hyperion um, and the old studios were, where you can go by so that you can, his, some of his favorite restaurants. So there's the myriad of ways to get to know Walt. He's definitely woven through the book as much as I can without like hitting you over the hammer, but that we're point is we are celebrating the Walt Disney 100th anniversary and Walt Disney company's 100th anniversary. And that Walt has a very important place and Nat Geo has embraced it. And there will also be a special deluxe edition with special content coming out as well. So there's wow. two versions of that. That's awesome. I it's funny because I a few weeks ago I had noted on Amazon and I saw oh my gosh this looks like an incredible title I I didn't make the connection, but I also see it's it's envisioned to be four hundred pages. Is that correct? Four hundred pages. I can't believe I. I mean, I only got hired in August. So yeah. So that's as I say it to myself. That's three books in three years, and we're not talking anecdotal books which there are a lot of great ones you know I have them in my library we're talking you know so uh but you know it was it was the adventure of a lifetime and it is I mean we're still in the thick of it right now with Nat Geo getting it ready to be uh it'll be debuting at D23 Expo in September they're an absolute 
complete, I keep using the word dream, but my editor, Alison Johnston, this epic level of collaboration, it's done an entirely different process. That's for another conversation, but the way the Nat Geo organizes or constructs books is different than the way I did. Basically, Marcy just says, I want this here and that here. And, you know, I, I, I write, write a book. This one is so many collaborators work at the same time and it's unbelievable. Oh, and I'll add, I think I can say this. Yeah, I can say it. Uh, an incredible, my dream person to write the forward said yes. And would you want to guess who that is? Well, I know who it is because I see it on Amazon. Oh, I'm so, oh, they put it on Amazon. Okay. See, I don't even look at my own book. Okay. Yay. So it's Jill Rohde. So when I had my first meeting with the editors and the editorial director, a very first meeting, I said, this is who we need to write the forward because he is Disney's ultimate adventure. He sure is. And so when he agreed, I thought, oh, this is delightful. So that's my next project. And then I have another one that I'm doing for the Disneyland, um, uh, a Disneyland book that's going to be done. I'm just doing some contributing material. And uh, then another really big surprise for serious Walt Disney fans, a small contribution that will be revealed at D23 Expo too. I don't think that's going to come out on Amazon until the Expo. So, yeah. Well, I am very thrilled for you and I'm thrilled for all of us who'll get to experience that book because the notion of aspirational is what uh, what kind of surfaced in my mind as I read the description of all these really unique experiences. So, and I think through the Nat Geo brand, it's, I mean, it's a perfect marriage. So that's wonderful. Uh, Marcy, let's conclude with some Disney related questions. Um, uh, I got my uh, Alex Trebek pin point, whatever you call it. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to ask you a few music questions, a few book questions, and then a random question. Uh, no right answers here. But on the music front, is there a Disney soundtrack that you listened to most while growing up? While well, growing up? No. No. Uh, the, the, no. That's a great question. I didn't really listen to music growing up. I didn't have any a record player. I would say as I got, you know, a little bit older, yeah, Main Street Electrical Parade, <laughs> you know, when that had that album that you got, you know, a little was 78 album. So I guess that I would say that it was probably around when did that come out? It's probably maybe eight or nine or 10 when I got that record. So that would be it. I played that over and over and over again, but not a soundtrack or not a bigger album. Sure, sure. Is there a, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Oh, well, that's an impossible question. And I'll tell you why is because since I couldn't be at Disneyland writing, I write exclusively to Disney music. And I'm such a geek that I will change what I'm listening to depending on what I'm writing. So with Walt's Disneyland, there are some great official Disney playlists like Disney piano and Disney classical that I listen to. There are some unofficial things that I've also listened to, like the sounds of Disneyland, which I really, really enjoyed. Uh, but for the National Geographic 100 Best Disney Adventures, when I was writing about Avatar, I listened to Avatar. When I was writing about Animal Kingdom, I listened to Animal Kingdom playlist. So to, if I had to say one, I would say that it was, uh, it's frozen because there was something that I was writing about. The Hong Kong has a, Hong Kong Disneyland has a special Elsa and Anna suite 
with all these frozen enhancements in them. So I was writing about that and I was, I have to be honest, that was the last soundtrack. But on it, that, that, the, and, and also because there's an adventure by Disney, a trip to Norway, which is really, really cool. And I was trying to tax, uh, tie in the axe, you know, the ice cutters that what Kristoff does. And so I listened to that first track on the frozen again and again. I, I think it's so evocative about hearing the guys cut the ice. So, you know, that, mm. Truth, truth. Frozen Heart's a great song. Like people yeah. don't talk about that. That's like it's very visceral. So um, you know the name, you're so good. <laughs> I've listened to it enough times, Marcy. Um, <laughs> uh, what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Oh boy. So maybe not frozen. I don't know. I, know, I would I would for me. I love Jungle Book so much. I just love Jungle Book. Um, and I can, you know, I don't think of I don't think of people saying I'm gonna listen to Jungle Book. The one that I listen to every single morning with my coffee is not underrated. It's the opposite, it's the Mary Poppins original soundtrack. I listen to it every single morning. It's my that overture just sets my day. If I don't listen to it, it's very rare. Well, and just get that spoonful of sugar for the coffee. So <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, good tie-in. Yeah. Did you hear that? And maybe you probably knew long before others about the Jungle Book exhibit that's coming to the Walt Disney Family Museum this summer? Yeah, I'm so excited. I didn't know before anybody else. I just, I'm a member. I'm actually a day one founding member because I was lucky enough to be invited to the gala. And because I live up right, you know, near San Francisco. And they, and Diane, who did not know me from anybody, said, oh, you know, we're going to need, I'm doing the crook of my arm thing, her, you know, taking me in the crook of my arm and saying, you know, we're going to need ongoing support. You should become a founding member. And I just decided I couldn't not because there was a pin involved. So, <laughs> no. That changes everything. It's like I I got it one of those different level, but with D twenty three Expo, the last one, like I'm a I'm a what was it called founding member of of D of Disney Plus. Um, oh, that's I don't have that one. I am a founding member of D twenty three. I was I got that was a a tip that I got. That would be an instance of a tip that I wouldn't have gotten if I wasn't a Disney person. That sign up today and you'll get the pin. <laughs> very cool. Uh, a couple of Disney book questions for you. Um, this might be hard to answer, but what is the most recent Disney book that you've read? Oh, well, I mean, I've just got The Women of Disney Imagineering. I got it early. My friend, uh, one of my friends is in the book. And I also, oh, there's actually, I have so many on my desk, but I would, this is the honest truth. I just got this yesterday as a gift and it was inscribed for me and I am thoroughly enjoying it. It's a unique and fresh perspective, one being women's voice, but you know, the range of the in the anthology and the different aspects of the different parks that what they were involved in is just fascinating. And I love having something that's digestible, you know, like you could read, a, you know, 12, 10, 12 pages and put it down. You don't have to remember anything because I'm, you know, busy doing this Nat Geo book. I've been sneaking. I feel like, you know, I've been sneaking candy. I've been sneaking a chapter at a time. It's highly recommended. And also Jim Cora's book, but I had, I had a Jeff Curry's book, but I had read that in manuscript form. Wonderful. Um, this might be, you might not be able to answer this question, but I'll still ask it. If you could write a Disney book on any topic that you haven't already written about, uh, what would it be about? Hmm. Well, I've said this publicly. Um, it's been a while. I would write about Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. I think 
I know it's a book. I mean, the whole history, you know, the tie into Walt's travels in the South Seas and then how it influenced uh, Disneyland. Then, of course, it was supposed to be a restaurant. And I know a lot about the restaurant that I know is not out there because of access to the archives. And I chose not to put it in Eat Like Walt because of time, space. And I, that would be that would be it. I would love to do that. Um, so we'll see. Right now, it's really hard to imagine taking on another project, but you know, I know me, I will want, I, it makes me, I get that joy, that feeling um, that I talk about that I wanted for Walt's Disneyland. That's how I feel when I'm writing about Disney. Research is fun, writing is hard, but, and whom I'm preaching to the choir here, but uh, the, I get so much joy from it. I can't stay away from it too long, just like I can't stay away from Disneyland too long. So maybe. Well, I, I know there would obviously be demand for that. Um, last question for you. Uh, this is a random one, so it's different with each guest. Uh, what is your favorite opening day Disneyland attraction, whether you have experienced it or not? So it could also be just from having researched about it. Wow, that is really, really good. Um, I, but I think I know with not, it would be the either Walt's train um, or the Mark Twain riverboat uh, because Walt had his 30th anniversary on and on July 13th before the park opened and I I, I would have listened I just yeah I would have loved it to been on that back in the day when they served mint juleps on it and there was live music yeah that would that would be it very nice finally how can listeners follow your work or purchase your work for that well matter? I always say this please consider an independent bookseller, you won't get it right away, but the independent booksellers sell all the books. And then of course, Amazon, tremendous partner and Shop Disney has all of my books. And then I have a website where I post, you know, what's going on or, and the recent reviews or, or it, what I think might be interesting contact at my name, MarcyCarrickerSmothers.com. I'm on Instagram, MarcyCarrickerSmothers, and I'm on Twitter, just Marcy Smothers, because they don't have that many characters allowed. Characters, <laughs> characters. How many times did I get that as a kid? <laughs> a lot. Marcy, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you and learn from you. And I, I know Walt's Disneyland is definitely going to be a staple for, for many a Disney fan. And in a matter of months, we'll, we'll have another addition to our library with 100 Disney Adventures of a Lifetime. Thank you very much for your time. I am so thrilled to have been with you and I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your audience. I really do. This is the fun part of writing books. And thank you again to Marcy Carriker Smothers for joining me on Notably Disney. Needless to say, I encourage you to check out Walt's Disneyland, a walk in the park with Walt Disney. It's truly a fascinating release with great imagery, really compelling prose and fun stories along the way. And as we heard from Marcy, there's more great material that we will be able to expect from her very soon, um, including the 100 Disney Adventures of a Lifetime Magical Experiences from Around the World, which is slated to debut this fall from National Geographic. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N- A-C-H-M-A-N reports, and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to NotablyDisney 
at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.